All right. Appreciate everybody joining in for another wonderful episode of the Brudek podcast. I'm Toby Tucker. I am uh, hosting today along with my partner in crime, my buddy, Grant Lawrence. Hey, Grant. Howdy. How goes it? Doing well. Doing well. Excited to hear what these guys got in store for us today. Yes, me too. They're wonderful individuals and a great story to tell. And it's a fantastic topic to say the least. So really excited to chat with them more. Grant, I got a question for you. And I don't, I don't know why I haven't asked this before, but tell me something about you that the listener may not know. I, I know one thing. It's kind of interesting. Let me start here and see, see if I'm accurate. I think you have a background in food and science, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 Food science. Studied that in grad school. Did you at one point butcher large animals? Yeah, yes, I did. Yeah. Yeah. For beer money in college, <laughs> we went from um, slaughter to retail cuts and you could, you could buy it there on campus. And uh, it, was, it was pretty cool. Got free steaks. Paid me pretty well too for the, for the time. It was um, gruesome, but fun and rewarding. So when you get like free, free steaks, were you making sure you're bringing in like all tenderloins? Like <laughs> where, where were they saying, ah, you can only have the flank. You know, it's funny. You see it on the menu these days, but you'll see like hanger steak on the menu, especially at these fancy steakhouses now. And that is historically like the Scooby snack for butchers. <laughs> <laughs> and we would just, you know, we would take that home sort of out of tradition. And now it's kind of funny, like that they're on menus, little strangely ugly shaped piece of meat. That's very tender, very flavorful, kind of by the skirt steak. Nice. Well, I get jealous. I know Grant loves to cook as well. And I see some of the stuff he's posting and some of the stuff he's cooking. We've had many conversations about it as well. It's just a talented all around, all around guy in the kitchen and, and in the brewery for that matter. So thank you. Thank you. Cool. Well, good to have you, Grant, as always. So without further ado, I want to introduce our guests today and happy to have them on. Josh and Jason Cody from Colorado Malting Company out in uh, Alamosa, Colorado. Guys, what's up? What's up? Hey, how's it going? Guys? Thanks for having us on. Yeah, absolutely. It's great to be here. Yeah, I know we've been talking about this for, for quite some time, so I'm glad we could finally do it. And uh, really no better time to do it in that, fingers crossed, things are kind of bouncing back uh, on the, the tail end of COVID. And people are finally being able to brew a bit more and enjoy the, the customers are obviously able to enjoy the fruits of, of their labor a bit more. So Let's start with this. Yo, tell me about where you're located in Colorado. I've, I've had the privilege to visit and it's very unique, but tell the listeners and Grant and I about uh, where you guys are located and what's, uh, what's unique about it. We're located in really unique climates in Southern Colorado. We affectionately call SoCo down here on the South part of the state where everybody from the front range is discovering where you can go and not be surrounded by a million people. It's called the San Luis Valley. It's about 7,400 feet above sea level. We have crazy heat in indexes throughout, especially the summer months, and also a crazy UV index, one of the highest UV index and you know, solar efficient area in the continental United States, which makes it exceptional for growing uh, small grains and bringing those to harvest in high quality status. Alamos is a small little town, so we call it a one Walmart town, and our farm's located uh, just southwest of Alamosa also where the Colorado Malting Company is here on the farm and the Colorado Farm Brewery now as well in its third year of operation. So we have a unique spot in Colorado for sure. We'll talk a little bit more about your, your brewery here later on in the show. It's absolutely a very cool setup. And what I will say is the time that I've been able to spend with you guys is it is a family operation. Hell, I think I met gosh, six, seven people in your family, you know, out there over several days, just, just working and, um, uh, contributing to what you guys are doing every day there at the Colorado Malting Company and the brewery. 
Yeah, very much a family operation. Actually, we're located on a our fourth generation family farm. Our great grandfather actually came here and homesteaded here in the 1930s. Got bought a house from the government uh, on 80 acre plot as a incentive to help people move west. And so we've been here ever since, and we're still here. And our grandfather was the one that started growing barley here, but that was kind of as people learned about the climate and it was some big breweries came in and started growing malting barley here. And that was probably 60 years ago, 70 years ago. So they've been growing barley here for 70 years. What happened to, and speaking of barley growing there, so what prompted you and the family to move or kind of combine the malting into your current operations there on the farm? Ours was driven by need. Uh, it was, I mean, this is a real story, right? This is Americana in some sense, like with the declining of the family farms in mm-hmm. our country and exactly. watching people who lived on the land and off the land for generations, uh, all of a sudden, you know, going into into town to get work kind of thing. Exactly. Um, our story was going to be the same, I think. It was going to be, you know, small family farms are out, just deal with it. And the only way for us to stay on the farm was to diversify and add value to our agricultural products. Uh, that was the only way we could do it. And, and we knew malting barley, and that's kind of what makes our operation unique is we came at the malting and the beer industry from the ingredient side instead of from kind of the hopeful brewer side. Mm-hmm. I guess you could yeah, say. sure. That's um, a good way to say it. And so that, that gave us a unique, pl- a unique platform in the industry and um, also some unique insight and knowledge to what actually makes beer and spirits. And that's, of course, uh, an agricultural product that we grow. So, yeah, I mean, ours was need-based. Uh, exactly. Every generation, so many people have had to be that generation that left the farm. And we just couldn't be that generation. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know how else to say it. It's like, it was like, became like so personal that we had to make it work. And uh, we still kind of live in that mindset. Totally, it's totally. like, we just we couldn't let it go. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I think you guys, you know, you mentioned not leaving the farm, but I, I believe both you guys left at some point, right? And came back to help out and kind of assist the family in kind of upstarting this malting company, right? And bringing it to where it is today. Yeah, definitely. We were both in the Midwest working on master's degrees and PhDs. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was actually, a, true. it was actually like a farm accident with my dad that brought us back. You know, mm-hmm. he, he was working on an irrigation sprinkler and, and had an accident. And so he was laid up. And so that's what brought Josh and I back and, and really sort of was the conduit, I think, for bringing about, you know, the first commercial craft mall house in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Colorado Malting. And then the drive that, that that sort of initiated and created in us, you know, now we've been doing it for 13 years. So, yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, that harkens back again to your comment earlier about being a family operation, you know, that, mm-hmm. that you know, you always back your family's play. And that's that's kind of our story. Definitely. You know, I was living in Milwaukee or Milwaukee area anyway. And it was like when my dad had his accident, it wasn't a question of like, Hey, my dad had an accident. It was like, how can I help? That was the natural reaction, even though Jason and I both felt that way. And even though we were both living in other places, it was funny because even when he was in the emergency room and ICU and then eventually a rehab center, the doctors were like, why are you guys here? (laughs) And it was like, they didn't really understand. I don't think because there's something about the farm lifestyle and growing up on a farm, being part of a family farm that just kind of cauterizes those relationships and and they don't just end because you get a job somewhere else, you know, they, they don't just end it. Like, it seems like it's very strong, that bond that was born on the farm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, tell me about whose crazy idea it was to say, you know what, let's try to make a little malting facility here. Number one, number two, 
I think I, I caught a glimpse of part or some of the, of the original kind of malt house, if you will. Tell me about that and kind of the challenge that was involved in number one, deciding let's get into malting. Number two, how do we do this and how are we going to build this thing? Jason's idea. Jason has to take credit or be blamed. <laughs> I was going to say, were they like, Jason, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. I just think that, you know, my dad and Jason really cooked up the idea. They got it. Both of them got to have credit for it for sure. My dad, Wayne and, and Jason, we had the old dairy farm here. When Jason and I were boys, we had a dairy farm on site and we, we milked cows and, and fed calves. And our life was that not just a barley operation, but also alfalfa hay farm, as well as a dairy farm, which milked about 80 head of cows, uh, Holsteins that w- we sold the dairy in 1995. And from that year on, there was stainless steel tanks just sitting in the old malt barn. And that was just became kind of a, I'm sorry, it was a dairy barn. Yeah, that's what we call so it I called the malt the barn, barn now, but yeah. it just sat there kind of in disrepair with the stainless steel sitting there. And so it was the natural choice, I think, to use those tanks. That was kind of the obvious choice, right? I mean, yeah. it really was. We basically got like a kind of a vision, you know, I mean, picture a bunch of farmers sitting around drinking coffee, all knowing that their family farms are probably three to five years from being extinct. And there was always ideas thrown around, you know, like yeah. maybe we should try a, a pellet plant. Maybe yeah. we should try, <laughs> you know, making all this crazy stuff. Yeah, and of course, exactly one of those true. ideas that bounced around was like, I wonder what happens to the grain before they make beer from it, mm. which is hilarious to me now that, you know, but we knew the malting barley side from agriculture. And, and then it was kind of like, well, you know, what is the process? And we started learning. We started working with some people who were experts in, in malting science. And um, we decided to take the little stainless steel dairy tank that we had and see if we could make it into a, a steeping germination and kiln vessel that would do all three processes. And so we just went chasing that. I've got some photos of one of the first kiln units <laughs> that we built, which would just, would just make you laugh. I mean, the thing looks like a giant squid. Yeah, my kids call it Doc Ock. <laughs> If, you, if you're villain from Spider-Man, yeah, you had like the giant yeah. back. Yeah, that's yeah. what it looked like. Because yeah. <laughs> it was like little air tubes, you know, that were designed both to keep the grain cool in germination and also dry it out. And so, man, I'm telling you, this company was built on absolute like farmer MacGyver sort of engineering <laughs> in the beginning. It's impressive. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, with the perfect setup for the stainless steel tanks and then... So steeping, germinating, and kilning in the same vessel to start. I mean, that's like, <laughs> it's not like a traditional malting setup. So talk about a, you know, they call that a flex malt house, right? When you have like a GKV, but you know, you're adding a whole other step to it in one tank is, um, yeah, it's very cool. Yeah. And it actually, in some ways, it, you know, it was revolutionary in the sense that to be able to malt any kind of quantity in such a small footprint, to be able to, to steep in the same tank that you're germing in and then kilning in. In some ways, they were quite revolutionary, and we're still utilizing that basic design, of course, in much more efficiency now in a much larger scale, but we're still utilizing this steep germ kiln way of doing it. So yeah, yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of how the story went, right? Like we just, I mean, I always tell this story of when we were just catching the dream, and of course, we were busy on the farm, and there was a bunch of stuff going on. We were farming a couple thousand acres of malt barley at that time, mm-hmm. and um, 
my dad pulled in the driveway where the old dairy barn was. And I was in the back room of that barn where they had stored a bunch of stuff. Calf starter. Yeah. Some calf starter powder <laughs> and, and a old like negative air compressor for the stuff. And I was just throwing things out into the driveway, trying to clean that space out so we could use it for malting. And it was like, what are you doing out there? <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know why, man, but the dream, or I don't know how you want to put it. The, the drive, the motivation was just, just in me. Like mm-hmm. it was just happening. Well, a lot of, like a lot of people in our industry, but going back to what you you guys said about kind of beginning the craft malting, kind of the run of people coming along and deciding to get into that game on a very small scale. Would there be any any listeners that would argue that you guys are kind of the, the forefathers of that, of craft malting? No, they would, but cool. they call him the godfather of craft malting. <laughs> <laughs> we call him and... Uh, deserved. Yeah, yeah, it is. A, it's amazing to think that nobody was malting at that scale. You yeah. know, it's it's just almost amazing to think we were there at the beginning of it, but that's just the way it was. And it's it was born out of necessity, you know, and right place, right time. We were in Colorado and uh, yeah, it was the right place, right time. Yeah, we actually sent out 120 survey cards to all the breweries in Colorado, Kansas, Oklahoma, mm-hmm. Texas at the time. New this Mexico. is in 2007 Northern in New Mexico, New Mexico yeah. asking them if they would buy a local regional product that was malted on a small scale. And uh, we got a lot of those cards back saying, absolutely, here's my contact information. Here's how to get a hold of me. And so that, that kind of spurred us on too. Although when we first started malting to sort of get the product out there, we weren't really sure how to do it. So we just took one of the pickups on the farm and, <laughs> and loaded what like a ton of malt in the back, a bag at a time. And, and we just drove around the state of Colorado and went to breweries and gave it away. Yeah. <laughs> said, said how much to make one batch of beer, man. And uh-huh. they would say, oh, two or 300 pounds or whatever their brew size was. And we'd say, here you go. Call us if you like it. Uh-huh. And then, boy, that snowballed. Yeah. Wow. Snowballed. Perfect. I bet. <laughs> at some point you decided to start charging people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, we got to make money at this. Yeah, yeah. We don't want to do this for free. You know, like that's, that's kind of rough. So yeah. 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 But that's the truth, man. That's exactly what happened. So we mentioned family. What's it like? You know, you obviously mentioned the, the importance of family and that, that structure and that cohesiveness and, and obviously that heritage there. How is it working together at the family farm, the, you know, the malt house, the brewery and any interesting or funny stories you can, you can tell us about that? Oh, dude, <laughs> so many funny stories. But I mean, honestly, for me, it's a dream come true. Like we started this conversation talking about how we actually left the family farm because we had to, you know, the nature of the world was such that I couldn't be here. And uh, I never thought I'd get to come back and work with my dad and my brother and work on the farm and ride my bicycle down here to brew beer. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I never thought I'd live like that. I, you know, like everybody else, I, I had to leave and it, that was it. And, and for me, it's a dream come true to get to work here and to get to be part of, you know, such a legacy. I, I never dreamt in a million years it would be as as amazing as it is. Yeah. Yeah. I totally, I mean, I feel that way too. The chance to work with your family is cool. You know, of course it comes with, with challenges, you know, when we, when we're working together, you know, and coming up with ideas and trying to schedule, like Josh was saying before we started recording, like it's crazy right now, Mm -hmm. you know, like Josh and I had to come in, we have a big board, you know, where we organize our about a month at a time and uh, have everything written down where everybody can see it. And, and we had to come in yesterday at 11 AM because both of our brains were just spinning man just spinning with all the stuff we're dealing with so we come in and like chart that out on the board for 45 minutes and then we both kind of took a deep breath okay okay Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah that that helped so yeah i mean it's it's pretty wild 
the funniest story though is me trying to pick a hotel. <laughs> like I can, I got the worst luck, man. When Josh we go to CBC hotels, or something <laughs> like that, and it, it's my year to like organize it. We kind of share that load. And if I pick a hotel, man, we I have the worst. <laughs> I'll be like, hey, this looks like a good deal, and and then it's crazy, man. <laughs> it's it's kind of like me and my wife when it's my turn to pick a movie to watch. Yeah. She says every, every time I pick is always terrible. Yeah, dude, that's me with the hotels, man. Yeah. I got the worst luck. Hotels. If you show up to a hotel and the first thing they tell you is no illegal drugs and no prostitution. Whoa. Yeah. Right. Wrong place. That actually happened. That's a true Red flag. Story. And I thought, man, we got a really good deal on this place. And Jason kind of looked at me like, what? That's why. That's why. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'll never forget that day. Yeah. It's pretty wild, man. And then the cool thing, like we did, we did some projects overseas with the malting company uh, four years ago mm-hmm. and uh, Josh got to travel over there more than the rest of us. But one trip we got to take together, it was dad and Josh and Bob, Bobby, our younger brother and myself. And we got to cruise over to Europe and mess around over there for about a week. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah, there, there's some, we finally realized we were human again after the jet lag and this crazy steakhouse in uh more like a farm brewery are you talking no about no the, no the first night oh yeah steakhouse <laughs> yeah and it was called the texas armadillo or yeah, something yeah that's like what that. they called it, it. it was in, and it's it's overseas finland it was, oh. <laughs> it was <laughs> called santa fe santa fe it was called the santa fe I grill think, yeah. or the, yeah. oh, it was, was weird man it was but that was crazy. about when we finally recovered after 24 ounces of whatever we drank and we started feeling like humans some yeah. carlsberg <laughs> yeah <laughs> Oh, awesome. Awesome. Here's a fun fact about Scandinavian countries. And you mentioned Texas. They actually use Texas as like an adjective to descri- describe something crazy in Scandinavian countries. <laughs> if you've never heard that. They just like, they'll just say like, that's so Texas. I'm not making this up. Really? <laughs> it's, yeah, it's pretty hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> I guess there's some truth to that. Yes. You know? I've, worked, I've worked with Grant for a long time now. And uh, yeah, it's just some truth to that. It happens in Colorado too, actually. Called- <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> we always have to follow the RVs and the big fishbowl campers yeah. down the road. Oh, what do you know? Stuff. Texas plates. Yeah. No, just kidding. <laughs> no, there's, there's no kidding about that. Like, one time I thought I was going to get taxed road rage because I was rolling around on my truck up there, going to the mountains of Texas plate and Sorry. some uh, very adamant Colorado loving folks who were just giving me the bird. Yeah. Like, get out of, get out of our state. Yeah, the but funny you, thing is they just moved here from California last yeah. week. <laughs> <laughs> That's a joke. That is a YouTube video. Just yeah, kidding. we're just kidding. Let's talk about your brewery a little bit. Tell us about your setup, kind of house beers. I'll move back up here. It's great. I mean, everything you guys are, are serving when, when I visit have been awesome. And it's pretty cool that you have product right there. You're taking from your own soil and end of the day, it, it really is grain to glass. So tell me a little bit about what beers you're brewing. Is there something specific that kind of catches, you know, people's eye or, or is very quenching, you know, after a long day's work is something with the SoCo gold malt, you know, what, what are you guys brewing up there? Yes, exactly. We, so we're a hyper local farm brewery. You could say we have an eight hectoliter brew house on site that services just our tap room. And so we don't really do any distribution or anything. We got a couple of buddies that own restaurants around us that have a beer or two there, but that's it. Otherwise it's all on site. We actually have a tap room in the old shop that my grandpa built. We used to fix tractors in when years ago, and now that's where the actual brewery is. But what makes us quite unique is like you said, we brew beer with all the state ingredients, hundred percent estate. So everything's from the property. So the, the malt is of course the barley, the wheat, the rye, it's all grown on site. It's malted on site. It's roasted on site. Every aspect of it is done on site. We have seven different varieties of hops that 
we try to grow here. Try is the crucial word. There's really only two varieties that lo- that like our climate, which are Cascade and Nugget. And so most of the beers are brewed with those two types of hops. And then uh, Jason actually captured a wild Saccharomyces strain in our my grandma's old house here on site in the kitchen. And we bank that uh, at Y Yeast up in Portland and we get a fresh slurry each time we brew. And of course we use well water. And so consequently all four of the ingredients come from the property. So we have hundred percent state beer that we brew here. And that's really what makes us unique. And the best part about the yeast is even though it is a farmhouse yeast, it's a pretty mild one and it's pretty good attenuator and it does a lot of work and it's pretty awesome yeast actually to brew with considering it was wild caught. So that's really what makes us stand apart. And the fact that you get to actually come drink a beer on the farm which I'm convinced has some some uh, merit because we live about 10 miles southwest of Alamosa and it's just enough windshield time to get your mind in the right state. <laughs> and so by the time you take that sip of beer, you're like, yeah, I like this place. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. That's pretty much how it works. And and yeah, I mean, the, we do brew multiple estate beers and those estate beers, it's all SoCo light for the base malt. And uh, the SoCo gold does go in one estate beer, which is our batch two, which is something like a, an amber, a state amber ale made with the Cascade and Nuggets. And uh, I, we put a little smoke malt in it and it's smoked with cottonwood because that's a local tree. Actually, the, the name Alamosa means cottonwood. It's what the Spanish uh, settlers called the, the cottonwood groves that grow along the upper Rio Grande River. And so it's kind of a cool historical piece to it. And, and we smoke it with the tree that actually grew right here on the property. And so it's a very estate beer. <laughs> mm-hmm. One of Josh's most popular beers for like summertime drinking is a farmhouse lager, which is an excellent beer, um, estate hops, estate grain, of course. And then he's also got a, a winner in the farmhouse Porter mm. and the farmhouse Porter is one of the ones we like to, we like to talk about a little bit because we're roasting the grain on site for that beer and always, you know, shortly before we brew the beer. So we end up with a bunch of volatile aromatics that we're transferring from the roaster into the mash tun. They really can't get unless you're roasting on site. The grain is still it's warm. Really pop. I usually get really it. Pop it. It's still warm. Mill it, mash it. Yeah. The out of the roast. Aromatics on those beers are like none other because of that roaster being here on site. And sometimes the kiln malt, even, you know, we'll finish mm-hmm. a batch of malt and we'll pull it out and decolm it, run it through the cleaner, and then it's in the mash tun before it's cooled down. Uh-huh. And there's, cool. there's something else going on in them that doesn't happen, you know. So that's so that's kind of cool too. Just uh, maybe a plug for domestic malts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, uh, you know, a, a lot of people swear by roasting their own coffee beans these days, right? And and making coffee with it right away. And it's like that same thought on on malt. Very cool. That is awesome. Yeah, another thing we're doing too is we're, we're involved in a project with CSU and UC Davis right now. Mm. We got some grants from ASBC and we got a grant from AMBA. And we're, we're basically working on quantifying volatile aromatics in fresh malt. So we're going to have some big stuff to bring to CBC next year as far as data mm-hmm. uh, to prove the fact that malt doesn't have to be aged, that fresh malt can really be a contribution to the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, we're right in the middle of that project uh, right now, working with another craft maltster out in California. Mm-hmm. And we're also, Josh and I have been working on some other kind of isolating sensory information based on not only varietals like it's one of the things that's driving me crazy right now is when people talk about different varietals and grain, they're talking about it like it's the only partner in the dance and they're completely wrong. The variety is an important part, but it's only one partner in the dance. You also have climate, 
You also have geography, you know, kind of based on geography. And then you also have soil type, which nobody's talking about. And we found in our sensory data makes a difference mm-hmm. in the grain, the way things grow, the way the environmental stresses happen, what's available to them in the soil. All these things in our sensory work is saying, hey, this makes a difference. And so you've got multiple partners in the dance. So when you're Variety is important, but you know you're kind of dancing all alone out, and they're looking weird if you're only talking about that. And the rye, the rye that we grow on site was the thing that really threw up the flag yeah. because it's so unique and different than other rye. And yeah. we thought, you know, if people are trying the same variety or whatever they're trying to do. It's our soil, even within a few miles of us, the rye is different. Yep. And it seems like one day we were like, why is this rye so different? And that was the day that we thought it's time for somebody to take seriously, not just focusing on grain or varietal, but also on the other contributing factors to flavor and grain. Right. Which is like coming at this from the ingredient side and the agricultural side, something that, you know, we're, we're seeing firsthand. So yeah, totally. Makes a heck of a lot of sense. Grant, you want to just drive on up to uh, Dallas and you mentioned windshield time is 11 hours too long to be able to come up to the, the brewery and enjoy your beer. <laughs> no, no, I, I can make fun. it happen. Yeah, I do anything to get out of the house at this point. <laughs> yeah. bet. All right. Well, let's uh, jump into kind of the meat of the episode chatting about alternative grains. And I, I don't think there's any better, better folks to have on to discuss, but you guys do a bunch of different, when I say alternative grains, we mean, you know, anything other than in your typical barley and wheat and stuff of that nature. So when did you guys get the idea to start malting and playing around with some alternative grains? Was it, was that out of necessity as well? Or was it, you've got the soil, you can throw some stuff in the ground and and let's give it a try. Basically, when we started working on these alternative grains was 2008, 2009, when we first started seeing a bit of a demand for malting alternative grains. And when I say that, I'm basically talking about gluten-free grains like millet, buckwheat, quinoa, things like that. Um, That project got started. And this is really hearkening back to the beginning of the craft beer movement too with New Belgium. New Belgium was was working on those gluten-free beers long before anybody else, I think, even had the idea. Yeah, I agree with that. And uh, really early. so they reached out to us as a small craft monster, realizing that we could sort of do some different things. And it, the timing was right because simultaneously, the Colorado Department of Agriculture had reached out to us too. They were trying to drive the millet market. And the millet, Colorado is the number one millet producing state in the country, a little known fact there. And so the CDA was trying to help millet farmers up in northeastern Colorado do something like all farmers are having to do, which is add some value to their commodity. And so they reached out to us and said, hey, if we could get you a grant for modifying some equipment, do you guys think you could malt millet? And like I said, the timing was right with the demand from New Belgium. And so we, we said, sure. And we modified one of our tanks. Mostly the modification came some CFM stuff on the fan mm-hmm. side in germination, but then also in the screen size in the malt tanks. So mm-hmm. we took the grant. It was a small grant, but we took it in and modified the malting tank so that we could put much smaller grains through the steep germ kiln process. And so that's really what got us started. And eventually we ended up malting uh, something called coik seed out of that they sourced out of the east, somewhere in the Orient. Mm-hmm. And then we malted um, some hemp. We've malted, boy, if you can think Teff. of it, Teff. Remember Teff? Yeah, the that smallest grain on earth. It's like sand. Yeah, so we had, to, we had to come up with different ways to do that. And uh, man, they made some really nice beer in Fort Collins mm-hmm. from those grains. Those grains are super unique too, you know, um, when you're thinking about small grains or 
different types of non-cereal grains, there's a lot of things to consider. You know, number one, any of those non-cereal grains are completely lacking in alpha amylase or beta amylase. Mm -hmm. Your diastatic power on a on malted millet is somewhere around 16, mm -hmm. which is almost laughable, right, compared to barley. So those grains require not only yeast nutrients for proper fermentation, but also usually some kind of liquid or fungal enzyme to make conversion. So they definitely re require a, a bit of background studying before you can just jump right into making a gluten-free beer from, from these non-traditional grains. Um, of course, these grains also, we've taken through every step in the process. So imagine, you know, white proso millet or red proso millet being a crystal 60. We have a really popular product right now that's a red proso millet that's basically taken through the malting process and gelatinization and kilning and then roasting to 60 lovey bond. And that's a really popular product for us right now. And the flavor contributions from these grains, like sometimes I think when people think about non-traditional grains, they think about gluten-free grains, and then they think, oh, those are only for making gluten-free beer. Eh, not true, right? Like, like these things will add tons of different flavor profiles to traditional beer um, as adjuncts and things like that. So that's kind of how the story goes for us. And we've been able to work with a, with a number of different breweries, some distilleries, even believe it or not, mm -hmm. saw some um, German millet really bring a lot of uh, harshness down in some like first spirit runs on some white dog one time up in Cedar Edge, Colorado at the mm -hmm. Colorado Gold Distillery. Uh, they were pretty pleased with that. So lots happening there on the non-traditional grain side. Like there's lots available. We're well, we have obviously malts that we distribute with Country Malt Group, but then we also have a lot of dropship products that brewers can access or distillers can access through there. Um, right now, I think the total number we're working with with all those different grains that we're providing right now is about 93 different malts mm -hmm. from a host of different grains. So the one thing you didn't mention was the sunflower seeds. Oh, I should have. That's too. become pretty oh, popular. Really? That was New Belgium too. It seems it like the Midas touch there. Yeah. The, they like were interested. Peter Buchart reached out to Jason and I about a collab they did with a brewery in Belgium, the Hofdain Dormall. Remember that beer? Yes, I do. And they yeah. put a, was it two tons or one ton of malted sunflower seeds in the louder ton in the big brew house? And then they ran just a massive amount of sunflower seeds <laughs> that had been malted and then milled. We milled it for them. Yeah. And we sent it up there in, in milled. And uh, from that time on, we've had a, a, a small kind of cult following for malted sunflower seeds <laughs> totally. where people want to throw a couple of bags in and see kind of what it contributes. And we can't get any analysis on it. We tried it malt labs and nobody will even test it. They don't even know how to start. But, you know, the one beautiful thing about craft beer is that people... They love to try things like yeah. that. I shouldn't even say willing. They love to try new things and they're reaching out for that kind of stuff. So those are confection sunflower seeds. Of course, there's lots of different types. So there's oil seeds, black oil seeds. These are confection seeds like you buy at the gas station when you're driving. But of course, they're <laughs> raw. Yeah, they're, it's functionally sunflower seeds. Yeah, exactly. I uh, like to grow plants. Um, but then we take them through the malting process. We have a really unique kiln schedule for these things. And they come out pretty nutty. It'll add a nice nutty background. If you overdo it, we always tell everybody, you know, please don't add more than about 10% of your grist. They help with your louder like oh, crazy. Yeah, it's better than rice holes, I think. Mm -hmm. And but at the same time, they give just a unique character to the beer. But if you overdo it, of course, it'll get earthy. It's like some oil. Earthy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mouthfield contribution. I was about to get pretty pissed when you mentioned two tons of sunflower seeds. And, and I was like, they're taking away from my dill pickle stock. Love those things. <laughs> Our fair share of those, too. And we joked one time, we're going to just put some in the roaster, you know? Salt Best flavor ever. Overnight, <laughs> roast them. But we haven't, we've yet to do it. So we did do some things with uh, hemp 
We looked at some mm-hmm. things with hemp with a brine. We've looked at that a couple times here. We've never done the brine here, but we've talked seriously about it. Yeah, lots of crazy grains, man, down here at the at the farm in the malting company. You mentioned millet, and you know, I, I'm curious. I've never brewed with millet. What kind of flavors could somebody expect with millet, and and what kind of like inclusion rates would you, would you recommend for that? Um, you were saying that the the diastatic power is really low on them. So if you're not doing a gluten free beer, how do y'all usually see it used, and or how do y'all like to use it? If you're going to use millet as sort of like an adjunct in a traditional barley or wheat based beer. I think the most appropriate way is either to buy it in a dextrin form, a crystal form, or a roasted form. You know, those bring out, of course, the most unique sort of flavors. Some people have said that uh, white millet has a similar flavor to wheat. And uh, I agree with that on the base malt side. Aromatics on the base malt white proso millet does sort of have like a weedy sort of bread dough thing going on. And I think you, you, so if you're working with the base malt, which you totally can, but boy, when you take that thing through the roaster, you know, kind of the prune, the raisin sweetness that you get out of those crystal malts is pretty intense. Yeah. Our experience there brewing with it. Yeah. The white and red proso millet roasted dry roasts, like our Abbott millet or our biscuit millet. Those in particular have a really nice nutty character. I'll give you a quick story. My wife gets together with a group of ladies around lunchtime, oftentimes when all the all their kids are at school. And uh, one time I, I had a sixth keg that was brewed with some white proso biscuit millet, about 15% of the grist. So it was pretty nutty, nice kind of like a bread-like flavor, like fresh baked bread kind of. That's what it reminds me of every time I smell it coming out of the roaster. And uh, I brewed a beer with it and she pulled out that sixth keg at noon. And normally when I'd get home from work, you know, they were gone for hours and I pulled up and got out of my pickup and I could hear this laughing. <laughs> and I realized that the driveway was still full of cars and they had all sat there and drank almost that whole sixth of cake <laughs> because of how good it tasted. And so that's a white proso millet story. Yeah. <clears throat> but Very it, nice. It, yeah. It is a nice contribution. It, it's an amazing contribution. Actually. The other one uh, we haven't talked about much is buckwheat. And the buckwheat is, again, it has no diastatic power, virtually none. However, when it's roasted or even malted, it is a unique contribution in flavor. The roasted buckwheat in particular, we actually call it peanut butter buckwheat because it's a similar roasting schedule to biscuit malt, except it's buckwheat, of course. And it has just this nutty flavor. It smells literally like peanut butter. It it is amazing. Of course, it's not, you know, but it's just buckwheat. Yeah, it doesn't come across like like a peanut butter, like once you put it in the mash, like it comes across just sort of nutty. Yeah, I agree. Nutty is the word I would describe for sure. Sounds like it could be used well in like a a stout, right? With all these peanut butter stouts and things like that to kind of accentuate it. Very cool. We actually made, it's crazy you said that, Grant. Yeah, we actually made a buckwheat stout here at the Colorado Farm Brewery and it was a huge hit. Yeah. It was an imperial stout too. And we we literally had to cut people off it too because it nice nutty flavor and it's up on you yeah it's crushable you know but uh yes it definitely contributed to that and that was actually a really fun beer to brew too i remember the brew date vividly that the mash in just had such a unique nutty smell to remember that buckwheat and, and it did actually help kind of in the the louder ton too because those imperials you know the grain bill can get pretty big and so it kind of helped run that off the way the the whole of buckwheat is unlike any grain on earth it's like this kind of triangular looking uh, hole that's actually quite tough. Even when it's incredibly dry, it doesn't really mill up. It almost cracks rather than mills. Yeah. And so that hole really stays together. And 
I remember pulling the grain out of the mash tun that day and, and it was layered nicely through that, that heavy grain bill. That was a cool one, actually. I'm glad we mentioned that. I've forgotten we brewed that stout. That was almost a year ago. We should do that again. It's interesting. I'm glad you mentioned the, the challenge to, to mill that. Overall, when we're talking about alternative grains and some of these unique grains, do you have any suggestions? Number one, what are the challenges in general? And are there any suggestions you have that brewers should be aware of when milling some of these grains? It does require kind of a paradigm shift for brewers. Yep. Like when we first started, we got a lot of interest in homebrewers and, and macro, um, super small craft brewers. And they would send me like a grain bill for like an amber ale with barley. And they'd say, can you convert this to a gluten-free bill? And my first thought was, you're already coming at it wrong. (laughs) Like you got to learn, like they're different grains, you know? And so you kind of have to be open-minded about what they contribute. You got to learn about it. You kind of got to go back to the old, your old days and you can't just plug it right into your system necessarily. Mm -hmm. However, there are pieces, especially the adjunct brewing where you can do that. And I think for us, we do a lot of milling of it. We have an isolated gluten-free facility. The original malt house is actually an isolated gluten-free facility now. And uh, we have an isolated gluten-free roaster and mill and grain cleaner and decolmer and vacuum and bagger and sorry. Yeah. Well, we have a whole facility that nothing goes through it that has gluten. And so because of that, we do a lot of milling. Some of our biggest millet customers, which are pretty large breweries, still order it from us milled Milled. because they don't want to have to put it through their their regular system or however their regular system is set up. Yeah, as far as as suggestions for brewers, if they are going to try to mill these non-traditional grains... It's reach out to us and we'll give you the mill set. Yeah, we actually and talk it. about it a little bit with you. We actually have had to take our our on our gluten free mill. We've actually had to take our rollers out, take them to a machine shop, and have kind of a special finish put on them so that they'll do what we need them to do. Uh-huh. You know, traditional grooved rollers or even completely flat rollers are not going to please you. You've got to. And there's, I mean, we can tell people what we've done as far as that's concerned, and then also give you like mill sets like. You know, we're not milling proso millets at 45,000. You're clear down around 15. Yeah, it'll pour through there like sand. Yeah, exactly. Hourglass mill. Sometimes it helps just to know those numbers so you can set things up right and give it a try, Mm -hmm. you know, and you don't end up wasting product. Mm -hmm. That makes sense about the milling. Let's say that you're a, you have a pretty small system, like five barrels or something, right? And it sounds like a lot of these you're talking about around 10% inclusion rates. Do you think it would be, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but the way I would go about it is you, you have your regular mill that your brewery owns that you use all the time. And then maybe just, just mill it with a homebrew mill, right? That would just, you know, if you're going to do like 10% of some of these, that way you can easily adjust it. You don't, don't really mess up your settings of your main mill. Have you, have you seen people do it that way? Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. That makes the yeah. most sense. Yeah. yeah most of my you've got more than that. You got a small mill for, you know, like one bag, or yeah. two, two bags or something Piece like that. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. We have a small homebrew mill that we use in a lab in here for some of the extraction and things that we do like that. Mm -hmm. And we actually occasionally will mill through that Mm -hmm. just see when we're using it in the lab. And that's how we do it. It's so easy to adjust. Like you said, Grant, like that's ideal. I mean, if you only got 50 pounds to mill, you know, it's like, or you just order it milled. If you know your brew date, we work with people a lot like that. And when we work with them, we'll say, well, what day are you going to brew? And they'll tell us and then we'll ship it. We'll mill it and ship it within 48 hours or something like that. And if they can get it, they'll mill with, they'll brew with it right away. Yeah. We've even had some experience with those non-traditional grains in the smoker. Right now we're smoking two tons at a time, but we can smoke up to eight tons at a time if we need to. I mean, so a host of different wood products, you know, for fuel. So smoking has become a big part of our lives in a very healthy way. Yeah, I was going to say. (laughs) 
you guys did some specialty stuff, including the cottonwood that we brought up to a CBA event sometime back. So we do have stock of some pretty un- unique stuff in uh, one of our DCs. So if any of the listeners out there want to try some, you know, certainly reach out to us. It yeah. seems like there's like, when I was in Europe a few years ago, we, I, I toured a lot of breweries and the smoked malt is like such a tradition there. It's hyper regional, you know, Germany, of course, in Bamberg, but up in Norway, when I was there, I studied the Schuderschule and it's a unique Alderwood smoked beer, hundred percent smoked malt. And when I came back, I was super pumped, you know, all excited telling everybody about smoked beer and then everybody kind of rolled their eyes at me and rightly so, because some of it's pretty intense, but I've noticed more and more of that actually in craft breweries, places that we go and we're doing a collab uh, with our mutual friend up there in Denver next Friday, actually, so that we can release it during CBC week. They do a lot of saisons up there. And so we're going to brew a smoke saison with those guys because that's kind of a fun idea. And when it's done right, you know, when there's some balance to it, it's good. Mm-hmm. It's really a cool thing that way. We talked a little bit about um, generalities and um, kind of the, the alternative grains is, is higher in protein than most standard barley malt. What are total proteins you're seeing? And, I, and Grant, I'm throwing just a general question to cover a lot of different types of grains, but louder performance, we talked a bit about, but do you have any tips here for kind of assuring, if you will, a smooth runoff for, for brewers using some of these different grains? Yeah, absolutely. Like, obviously, if you're using it as a small percentage of the grain bill on a standard beer, of course, it's not mill sets is important and protein levels matter, of course, but really on the proso millets, you're just around 12%. So that's like about the top end of a standard malting barley mm-hmm. uh, protein levels. Like here at Colorado Malting, we don't malt any barley. It's uh, above 13% protein. So 12 is at the high end on the millets. The buckwheat we've seen go up over 13 a number of times. The sunflowers are, I think, 16 or 17% yeah. protein. Who knows? Kind of like, like wheat can be, mm-hmm. you know. So, you know, our tips are always just, you know, just pretend like you're, you're making a wheat beer. We'll watch the mill set or watch your mill set close. If you're going all gluten-free on the beer, then we really need to talk about mash temps because these grains are not the same. I wouldn't ever suggest somebody using it as an adjunct or as a part of the grain bill, really adjust mash temps for it. But if you're trying to, you're trying to make sugar from millet starch or modified millet, and you're trying to make conversion from this stuff, like to feed yeast, then we really have to talk about mash temps. And we, of course, have documentation if somebody orders these grains from us and they tell us if they're going to make an all millet beer or a millet buckwheat beer or a millet sunflower beer or whatever. We've got documents that we'll send over and help out folks with mash temps because it's a step mash is what it is. Yeah. I know a lot of guys aren't set up for step mashes, but you need to be if you're going to make 100% millet-based beer. I got a crazy story about that. I'm glad you brought it up because we, one of our biggest customers had a problem with some coagulant after a time in the can and they were brewing all gluten-free IPA. And in that can, it just settled and it looked crystal clear. They were doing all sorts of filtering, everything they could do looked beautiful to get in the can. And like a month later, all of a sudden there'd be some coagulant down in the bottom. And uh, they had some complaints from their customers and they were really bummed. And so Jay and I reached out to our buddy, Martin Zarnkow, who is a professor at Weinstephan in Freising. 
And uh, even though, of course, the, the Rheinheitsgebot does kind of limit brewing with millet in Bavaria, he actually stepped out of his traditional world. He's from Nuremberg originally, but he did his dissertation in malting proso millet at the University of Ireland. And thankfully, it's written in English. And so I met him at the World Brewing Congress years ago, and I called him up and was like, man, if we sent you some of this, could you test this coagulant? So they th- at the Technical University of Munich, they tested it for us and sent us back a full report. And it, it was actually grain in origin, but we helped that brewery to tailor make their uh, slurry of enzymes to make sure that that coagulant was going to get broken down in the mash tun and it took care of that, that problem. Yep. But there was a, a unique kind of protein issue. Jason's comment about the step mash, you know, it's like, that's part of the problem with millet is the DP is low, of course, but the, the gelatinization temperature of the starch is quite high. And so if you, when you got to get it nice and warm, you get that, that starch into a gelatin. So it's available for enzymes to break it down into fermentable sugar. But once you do, you could potentially degradate the enzymes due to the high temperature of the starch uh, necessity. And so there is a real balance there. If you're trying to make that beer, that's just the way that it is. But as far as the runoff is concerned, you know, rice holes are naturally gluten-free. And so that's not a bad way, honestly. Yeah. You can really get lots of stuff in suspension along with those grains if you're going to do that. But I think the sunflower seeds offer just as much help that way. And you might get a little cool protein mouthfeel in it too. And so that's that's just my opinion on that. Pro tips right there. <laughs> you know, that's, that's stuff that you can't just read in a normal brewing book. I mean, you guys are really kind of paving the way on, on some of this info. So good to know. Thanks, man. It has been a crash course with the millet. Like yeah. we have learned a lot of lessons in it. And it's like you got 7,000, 8,000 years of barley brewing, you know, and then you kind of got like the first time millet comes on history. I think it was Attila the Hun. And once he tasted the barley beer they were making in Europe, they didn't drink the millet beer anymore. <laughs> and it's like, it time to be trying to figure it out without a lot of data. You know what right. I mean? So kind of build an in-house data. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We certainly appreciate having you on the show today and chatting alternative grains, but you know, we wanted to mention that you guys kind of already did, but Colorado malting, you guys make all kinds of specialty malts. And I know one of the infamous ones is the, the brownie malt. Can you tell us a bit about that one? Tastes like a, tastes like a chocolate brownie. It's my understanding. Yeah, that's the idea was that it, when it uh, comes out, that it's has like that brownie sort of aromatic. And then also imparts like those unique brownie and brownies are different than just chocolate, right? Like chocolate is, it's got its little roast hint. It's got sort of like that chocolate bite, especially if you get into like a dark chocolate thing. The brownies are always not that way. They're always sweet and kind of creamy on the, on the palate with that sweet sort of milk chocolate thing going on. And that was inspired by our regular chocolate malt. You know, our chocolate malts are traditionally a bit lighter than other people's chocolate malts. And we're really always going for like a milk chocolate malt with ours, not that harsh, dark chocolate. That has a lot to do with our roasting, the way we're barrel roasting here and the way we step up temperature rather than just blasting it like with a coffee roaster as hot as you can, quick as you can get it. So we have a slow, Josh and I have a trademark called old world roasting that we utilize occasionally with these roasted malts. And it's just the way that we step up the temperature. So that kind of inspired the brownie. Now the brownie is like a, a, a sweet chocolate mix sweeter than your standard sort of chocolate malts or like our milk chocolate malts. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just a unique recipe that we came up with in the roaster that you're right has been, has been pretty popular by name for sure. Mm-hmm. It's know? got a touch of caramelization that we do. So it's slightly gelatinized and then slightly converted, but not completely. And then the caramelization happens in the roaster along with the darkening and roasting of the grain. And so consequently we get that sweet balance with the chocolate flavor mm-hmm. and 
Yeah, it has been kind of a fun thing, actually. Yeah. And we use it here in the beers and people seem to love it. Yeah, cool. great stuff. Great stuff. What a off topic here, but what do you guys, what's your choice of adult beverages lately? And kind of what, what's in your beer fridge at the moment? I, Josh and I, we just are into light lagers. Like, I get some lager lately. Man, that, like, I got some Centennial IPA oh, though. Yeah. With it was this like a smash beer. It was Founders. Founders I think yeah. our little brother lives out in Michigan. And so we hear Michigan talk occasionally for beers. And then he gave me one of these M43s, which was a hazy IPA. It's some, some little brewery up in Michigan. I can't remember the name of the brewery. The beer is called M43. That's all I remember. Big can. Yeah. It was pretty good. But I've been trying as much craft lager as I can lately. I don't, I don't know if it's the hot temperatures. Yeah. Something's driving my consumption. Probably the up. forest fire smoke. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's like it's smoky, and then all of a sudden you're like, "Well, we've been in the smoker with cottonwood malt." Yeah, exactly. Like, Where's the lager? Man? Yeah, dude, you're just ready for like yeah. a crisp, drinkable <laughs> beer. It. That's kind of where I've been. That's true. Although I've been pining for a, some wheat beer. I recently brewed some Hefeweizen in here because I just been needing some wheat beer too. But that's it. I mean, maybe it's just seasonal for us. Yeah. But in in the fridge here, um, yeah, we got the the wheat beer. That's that's the one that I've just pulled off actually. Yeah, what, what about you? Yeah, what are you drinking? It's got to be hot down in Texas, huh? Man, we've had a hot spell in Southern Colorado. I tell you what, man, I drink this. This is fantastic. Actually, it's a new release. It's called Water. It's uh, man, it is so good <laughs> right now. And when it's 110, <laughs> yeah, 110. Ouch. Yeah, hot. It actually hit 90 degrees in Alamos. 92. It was a record, and we had Gosh. craziest hot weather we've had lately. Like hot for us. I mean, I know that's not hot for texas uh, but that's hot for alamosa man 90 degrees up here yeah i mean for me i'm, I'm the same it's seasonal you know I, I love the the light lagers it's refreshing i can you know have three or four of them and still be able to go out and mow the yard if you will and but grant grant's a little more fancy than i am i see him posting all kinds of he's opening up like you know, barrel the grand, age you know? stuff and yeah he's he's got a, quite the collection so <laughs> yeah i've been on the logger train as well i just picked up one here in houston from um, equal parts brewing they they did a uh they did a, a rice lager, which is kind of a kind of a trend now, like a Japanese style lager beer. And they just came out with it last week. It's called Kaizen. Killing it. Delicious beer. Oh, yeah. good. That's rice, huh? Like inspired off a of sake, huh? No, more just like a Sapporo or Asahi. Just your your traditional Japanese lagers. Yeah. yeah. Cool. That's actually pretty cool beer. I've had that before. I kind of uh, threw a curveball at Grant and, and mentioned some fun facts. So we'll go to you guys. It's fun facts. Give me Give me something that people may or may not know about you or something interesting you can share with the group i love whiskey <laughs> probably not a big talker to anybody no i was gonna say that's that's not quite unique yeah to this audience not too unique probably um but my favorite whiskey is lafroig and uh, lafroig is an islay uh, style peated whiskey probably one of the most intense peated whiskeys in the world and i have like a strange addiction to it, not in quantity, but in ice cold volume. And so I'll, I'll get like two pieces of ice, put one ounce or an ounce and a half of Laphroaig in a glass, and then I'll let it sit for a good five minutes before I drink it. And I do that pretty much every night, <laughs> especially lately. And, uh, that's, I just am addicted to that. The flavor of that peated malt. Like I just, they got a unique thing going there. Fun fact to tell me about your land. You oh, yeah. So I'm a friend of Lafroy. Uh, <laughs> and uh, if you know what that is, they have this really weird uh, group you can be a part of with Lafroy. And it, you own a one foot by one foot 
plot in their peat bog once you become a friend. (laughs) (laughs) And so they send you this really funny like deed to the property once you become a friend. And that's one thing that that people might not know about me. (laughs) (laughs) And so I kind of geek out on peated whiskeys, actually. And we do a lot of peat smoke here. So yeah, we do. Yeah, it's true. Maybe it's the smell of the peat smoker when I'm when we're stoking the a stove or something and i just get that smell and i can't stop thinking about it all day long i might have a problem (laughs) channeling your inner ron swanson (laughs) yeah so that's one funny fact about me yeah i mean fun fact about jason i don't know how many people know this but jason has 10 kids you know in our our prep for (laughs) in our prep for the show Grant and I mentioned with the rest of our kind of our podcast crew, like we should bring up how many kids these guys have. It's crazy. We have a huge family. Yes, Collectively, yes. 17 children. Yeah. Oh my so God. We all live on the family farm and uh, we all work together. The, old, the, older, <laughs> the older boys are getting an education in the malt house, the yep. warehouse. Yep. And the brewery. Yep. yep. And the brewery. The kids, uh, even the younger boys and some of the daughters. Yep. 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 Get lots of time. Man, you have very patient and understanding wives i assume that's a lot man if you had any idea how amazing <laughs> they are They're we great. have we were blessed with amazing wives yeah, definitely totally. and uh that that's i'm very thankful for that yeah. Yeah, definitely i have a hard time managing two wow you know what i tell people that having two was as hard as having four not well, seven but four once you get <laughs> say once you get to six then they hurt up and yeah. fight in groups yeah that's true. Uh, <laughs> true for me it was a hockey line you know i thought you got to have five on the ice you got to have a goalie you got to have somebody sitting back you know so right. seven seemed like a good round there you go. yeah. <laughs> there's some fun facts about us <laughs> yeah that's awesome no good stuff oh, we're living the dream though man seriously yeah, it totally. is working together like that it's 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 amazing yep well for those listening if, if you haven't had the chance to to meet Jason and Josh. And I know, you know, once we were able to start traveling again and kind of get these guys out in market, they're truly unique, passionate, you know, the kind of the, the epitome of our industry and what they're doing and the uh, family oriented business, some fantastic product that they're, they're putting out. And obviously we are just super glad to be able to, to help get their product out to market in kind of limited areas at this point, but um, really happy that we can, we can help uh, get your product out into the hands of, of more and more customers. And for those folks that are interested in trying some of either the malts or kind of their alternative specialty grains, reach out to uh, your country malt group uh, territory manager. We'll be happy to, to, to help you out. And as Jason and Josh mentioned before, they are a phone call away and they're, they're always willing to talk to folks about brewing with their products and, and sharing a, a glimpse in what they do in the history of their of their uh, family farm and malt house and brewery. So really great to have you guys on. I appreciate it and uh, look forward to seeing you soon. Yeah. Speaking of that, thank you, Toby. Speaking of that, uh, CBC, that's going to actually happen. I think it is. Yeah. Yes, it is. I had heard there's this no holds bar. It's a full go at CBC this year, according to the Brewers Association. Amazing, man. Beautiful. That's, and it's in Denver to boot. So that's right. Well, we will have a crew out there guys. I, I, you know, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'm assuming y'all might make the trip. We can elbow. Yeah. There we go. Well, good opportunity for folks listening. If you want to, you want to meet the guys, just uh, come on by uh, the country malt group uh, city, if you will, and, and have a chance to meet them and talk a little bit more about the alternative grains and specialty stuff. So thanks again, guys. And for the listeners out there, continue to uh, hit subscribe from wherever you get your podcast. We'd uh, love to have you as uh, 
as weekly or bi-weekly guests when we roll these things out. We're uh, going to continue to put out some fantastic information and stuff that might help brewers, distillers, and just generally folks that want to learn more about our wonderful industry. So Grant, thanks buddy as always. And we'll chat with you here very soon. Cheers. Cheers guys. Thanks. Thanks.